How to Play, Episode 43, Merchant of Venus. Hello and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in western New York. The How to Play podcast is all about learning and teaching games. In each episode, I provide a full explanation to help you learn and learn to teach another great game. For more How to Play episodes, special episodes, teaching guides, our discussion forums, and to help support the show, visit our website at www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Also, be sure to visit our affiliated podcast on the Dice Tower Network at dicetowernetwork.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, and today we are going to talk about the most highly requested game ever to appear on the How to Play podcast. Over a 100 of the listeners have voiced their desire for this episode, and I'm very glad to bring it to you, the last episode here of 2012. This episode is being recorded on December 30th, 2012. So for this episode, I just want to give out a shout out to some of the people who've donated to the show in the last couple of months. I've gotten support from Con Creek, Lord Magnus, Costas, Kevin, Adam, John, William, Andrew, Tom, Mark, Barry, Eric, Davis, and Michael. Thank you very much. And for several of these people, this is uh, their second time around or, or third with their donation. So thank you very much, gentlemen, for your support. Also, I want to thank Fantasy Flight Games for being willing to send me out a copy of their new edition to you for review for this episode. So today I'm very excited to talk about a, a game that I really do love. It was designed way back, way, way back in 1988 when I was busy with G.I. Joe's. Richard Hamblin designed this great game and it was released by Avalon Hill. It's been sort of a, a cult game. There was a beautiful redesign by a man named Michael Christopher. The game had been out of print forever and uh, this man obviously loved the game, took it, made all new art, all new everything, and made it available as a PDF, just sort of put it out there for the community. It was one of the best free available print and plays ever made and just created that and out of sheer love for the game shared that with the gaming community and i think because of that redesign really brought the game back into the the forefront of a lot of gamers in the hobby and a lot of gamers fell in love with this game enough to uh, go through the exhaustive process of creating a print and play with a zillion components like this game has. This then gained the notice of not one but two companies who set to work on re-releasing this game at the same time. Both Stronghold Games and Fantasy Flight Games were surprised to learn that both of them were working on uh, re-releasing the same game at the same time and had to uh, work that out between each other. And Fantasy Flight Games finally released their version in 2012 and through discussion of Stronghold Games, who was planning on doing more of a classic version of the original version, Fantasy Flight decided to include two games in one box. It is possible for you to play the classic version the way the original game was in 1988, uh, but on the other side of the board is a slightly altered yet very similar game board with a lot of modified components in the box to play their reimagined version of the game, which they're calling their standard version. And this is reworked by Robert Kuba. So I got this game and I, I decided I had to give this new standard version a try, having fell in love with the classic version and, and played it many times. Having played the, the new standard version by Fantasy Flight Games, 
I'm going to recommend to you, and, and maybe this is my bias because I, I originally fell in love with the original, I'm going to recommend that you play the classic game the first time that you endeavor to give this game a shot. I mean, first of all, there, there's sort of the history behind it. You know, there's something about a game that people are still playing about 25 years later and still respecting as a great game with all the great games that we have now. It's almost like a piece of gaming history, and it, it's great to go back and play that. But even more than that, I, for me, for my preferences, it suits my personal taste better as, as I think it's, it's more economically based. You know, there's still the exploration and the excitement, but there's not quite as many uh, random and chaotic elements that, that sort of the newer version brings in, as well as the newer version took out at least one element from the original classic game that I really love. So after a lot of careful thought, this podcast will explain to you how to play the game using the classic rules. In the footnote section of the rules, I will go over what the differences are between the two different games. And, of course, it's your decision which one to start with. But if you want my professional recommendation, I'm recommending that at least your first time out, you play this game using the classic rules. And that will be my description of the game. Okay, how to play listeners, I have a special surprise for you. In order to truly give you the full Merchant of Venus experience, I thought this episode would not be complete without inviting the world's number one Merchant of Venus fan. And so I was going to roll out into my little segment of why I love this game. But I thought I could not do this justice by myself. Why would I do this when I have a good friend who is the master of loving Merchant of Venus. And here he is, <laughs> Mr. Eric Michael Summer. Hello, sir. How are hello, you today? Hello, Ryan. How are you? I, you know, that's a really great introduction. I am the number one lover of Merchant of Venus. Not the best player, but the number one lover of the game. I think that's, that is an apt description. So is this the podcast where we do the silly voices to explain the game? Because I'm ready. Hi, I'm a megalith paperweight. You load me in a ship and cart me to another planet. Come on. And I am the finest dust. Oh, we should we really should have orchestrated this better. I didn't know we were ha we we were we were planning that out. You didn't show up to rehearsal. Ah, uh, yeah, I don't I usually actually just kind of make it up as I go. So, I, I well figure. done, sir. That is a great megalith paperweight. <laughs> I it's I've been training for a while. It's it's method. It's method acting. I've been sitting around on various piles of paper. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so I was asking the question. We we're just about to ask the big question that I always uh, start with in order to get my, my listeners interested and enthused about the game, why I love this game. So I turn it to you, as I said, the world's number one lover of Merchant <laughs> of Venus, to explain, Mr. Eric Michael Summer, why do you love this game so much? Something about Merchant of Venus is a perfect storm of elements I enjoy. Uh, it's the theme. I love space themes. It's exploration. I love ex heading out into the unknown, not knowing what, what I'm going to find around each corner. I like the efficiency engine of pick up and deliver. And all of this comes together in, in a package that is 
to me, the perfect game. Also, the thrill of the unknown as to whether you're going to get from point A to point B. Uh, I, I love the arc of this game, how it starts out with the thrill of the unknown, exploring unknown space, and then it becomes a little bit more of an efficiency engine, and then it becomes this exciting race as you're trying to get to the ultimate total before the other players at the table. So, altogether, it just comes together into an exciting adventure that I adore. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with you. It's it's sort of the combination of elements that makes it such a magical game. Like there's some there's some really great exploration games out there. There's some fantastic economic games, but this is a, a wonderful blend of the two. And the way the game steps its way through the different phases of first starting in that exploration phase, and then and then building up your your empire and and just continuing from there. It's uh, it is really a great experience. I. I wholeheartedly agree and and i thank you mr summer actually introduced me to merchant of venus and kicking uh, and screaming i I had to uh, cut out lots of circles and 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 adhere (laughs) them to wooden discs but i am glad of it because i love my i love my handmade copy but now so many more people can try it because there's actually a real commercial edition out. Nobody has to cut out those circles anymore. Yeah, it's not just for the lunatics who want to cut out 437 circles. That's right. <laughs> uh, but the other great thing about um, Merchant of Venus to me is, uh, you know, it's not just a science fiction theme. It's this wonderful campy science fiction. I mean, you brought oh, up the yeah. megalith paperweight before, you know, just the names of the goods and just just the overall uh, feel and with with the new artwork that the the person who did the the redone version that both you and I made originally, as well as the new Fantasy Flight version, it's got this great campy feel that just gives the game a, makes the game a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh yeah. Who will not like this game? I'm sure you've introduced this to people, and despite your incredible enthusiasm, somehow they do not like this game. So who won't like Merchant of Venus? Well, it's it's possible that everyone that I've ever introduced this to has just been really, really polite. But I, I've had tremendous success with this game. However, you, you are right. Not everyone is going to like this. Uh, if you are totally adverse to dice... Dice play a pretty large role in this game in both editions, both the classic and the new Fantasy Flight version. And if you are the kind of person who's going to get really, really upset that you get stuck in the cloud somewhere and you're going in circles for a turn or two while other players are making deliveries, this is not the game for you. But if you consider that risk versus reward aspect to be exciting, well then, yeah, dice, go for it. So if you don't like randomness, yeah, you're probably going to want to stay away from this. If you're a diehard Eurogamer, this does fit into the the more American-style gameplay. Uh, but But there's still a lot to like if you're willing to embrace a little luck. Obviously, the length is also an issue. There's some people who who steer away from games that are more than two hours. Well, you're going to be out of luck with this one. I mean, we're typically talking about you know a four-hour game experience around there, uh, depending on the speed of your players. About that, although I have gotten a three-player game to one of the higher totals in the three-hour mark. So I think once players know what they're doing, you can trek along pretty fast. Although I would recommend, I don't know if you're, you're going to discuss this later, that you not play any edition of this game with more than four players. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, wholeheartedly agreed. Anyone who is upset about the game, uh, the new version being, you know, only up to four players probably hasn't played Merchant of Venus no, before. No, no. This it, is one of those games that... would that... just be painful. I, I don't think that would be really a, a lot of fun 
Um, but you said that that game took about three hours, but then it was probably another 34 minutes to get it all back in the Plano box. And that would probably be my <laughs> other thing is if you don't like, yes. I guess the word is fiddly when you have, you know, there's 700 components in this game to get them all in their correct locations in the bags and get them all out and set up and get them all back and put away in, in their correct bags. There's a lot of, of little chits and, and a lot of money exchanging going back and forth. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of sorting when you're all done uh, to, to get it all ready to go. But but with a good system, with a nice Plano box, you can, you can get a system down and get things together pretty quickly. Uh, the last thing I would mention is uh, downtime can be an issue here. Uh, there's not a whole lot. In fact, there's nothing that you can do on someone else's turn to affect them. Uh, we end up giving jobs to the various players sitting around the table. One player is the banker and another is in charge of that drawing cup uh, that you'll be discussing later, Ryan. Uh, and so everybody sort of keeps all of the elements of the game moving rather than having it all sit on one player's shoulders, which is a good way to, to keep things moving. If you do want a whole lot of player interaction, however, uh, unless you're going to play with the optional combat rules from the original edition, not the new Fantasy Flight, uh, this is not going to be as much direct player conflict as you may be used to in an Avalon Hill title. Uh, you're going to be affecting players by stealing their stuff, but not necessarily actively messing with them. The new Fantasy Flight Edition does offer some possibilities in that regard. Uh, but if you want direct player conflict, this also is not the game for you. Yeah, that was going to be my last, I guess, negative against it, is that unless you do something like, you know, start throwing little components at your opponent or singing songs <laughs> or saying random numbers while they're trying to do their math. There's not really a lot of ways within the rules to affect your, yeah. your opponents. So what about a complexity rating? Help me with this decision. Where would you set this game? Uh, being as, you know, Black Diamond means it's a gamer's game. Double Black Diamond, I usually say, you have to play it a full game once just so you know all the rules. I would say this is a, uh, uh, let's go with a blue diamond. I think this is probably firmly in black diamond territory, but it's not that difficult to understand if you are being taught it by someone who already knows the game. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that this is a family game. This is definitely a gamer's game, but it is not as complicated a gamer's game as you might expect from looking at the original Avalon Hill rulebook. Did you say blue diamond? That is exactly what I said. I am <laughs> blending. I am refusing to play by your rules, Mr. Sturm. I don't have an icon for a blue diamond. <laughs> How could I possibly create a diamond that's colored blue? Oh, fine. It's a black diamond, but barely so. <laughs> All right, well, I think that about does it for uh, telling us why this is such a great game. I'm so glad that, Eric, you came on uh, to express your enthusiasm because I, I don't think I could near, do it nearly as well as you could. It's time to get to business. It's time to explain the game, Eric Summer. Are you ready? Here you go, Eric. It's Let's time it. for the hook. Do you have the guitar? But I, I didn't know I was supposed to bring it. I have a ukulele in the other room. <laughs> Do you can you actually play the ukulele? Uh, not very well, no. <laughs> well, that's perfect. I can't play the guitar very well, so. <laughs> but I'm Jing. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll bring you back in later. Sure, no problem. I'll be back here in the corner while you explain the rules, okay? All right. You just stay over there in the corner, and and I'll ask for you again when I need you. Okay. All right. Let's get to the hook. 
The structure for this show, we have an intro, the meat of the rules, hamster to give you some basic strategy. And at the end, as I said earlier, I will talk about the differences between the classic version of the rules that I'm just about to explain to you and the standard version that is, is your second option out of this box. And actually, I'll probably bring Eric back and get his take on the differences between those two versions. As always, I recommend having that game right there in front of you, the rule book, or access to the internet to see what's going on to visualize these rules. Or if you'd like, I recommend you go take a look at Eric Summers' video that he did reviewing this game. It'll give you a good look at the components and help you decide if this is a game you want to explore further. All right, let's get to it. Let's get to the hook. Part 1. The Hook. What the game is about. Welcome to Merchant of Venus. In this game, you are an interstellar businessman trying to make your fortune shipping goods across the wilds of outer space. The first player to amass a wealth of 2,000 space credits will win the game. Becoming the wealthiest merchant in the galaxy and the winner of the game takes just three easy steps. First... Explore the galaxy to make contact with alien species and discover the good trade routes. Second, exploit those newly discovered routes to buy and then sell goods to start to amass your fortune. And finally, invest that fortune in spaceports and factories to help you accumulate wealth even faster. The player that does those three things the most successfully will get to that target amount of money the fastest and win the game. Part 2. The Meat. How to play the game. Yep, really, that's it. That's all there is to this game. Explore the galaxy, exploit your trade routes, and invest your fortune. I'll describe those rules going over those three steps. First of all, let's look at how to explore the galaxy. Okay, so your turn in this game is very simple. If you want to move, you pick up the dice... Your starting ship rolls on the count of three six-sided dice. You pick up three six-sided dice, you roll them, and then you move. Then if you have somewhere to land, you land. And if you land on a spaceport or a planet, you can buy and sell goods. If you don't land, then your turn is done and you pass the dice. And the game continues in this way until someone gets to that target amount of money and wins the game. So what are the rules about moving? Well, the first thing you have to do, and I always, always forget this, don't forget... Before you roll the dice, otherwise it doesn't count, you need to say which direction you're going. For example, in the beginning of the game, everyone's ship starts at this galactic base, and there's three different paths which to go. And so before you roll the, your three dice, you need to point at the first dot you're going to go to, east, west, or north, we'll call them, and you say, I'm going to go there. Then roll the dice. So you say, all right, I'm going to go north. You roll the dice say maybe it's 11 and you start counting out 11 if the paths branch after that first initial dot well then you're able to choose which direction that you want to go but you have to go your full roll or you have to land somewhere you can only land on surface cities or on asteroids or on spaceports you're not allowed to pull a full 180 once you start going one direction you are allowed to move past or be on the same space as other ships 
You never really fight other people's ships in this game. And if you want to land onto one of the planet's surface cities, uh, you'll notice a green line connecting uh, one of the dots in space and where that city is on the planet on the board. And going on those green lines take two movement points. So maybe I go, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven to that green line, eight, nine down to the planet, and then bang, I've landed on the planet and I can interact with that planet. So we are exploring the galaxy at the beginning of this game uh, you're in the middle of this this galaxy and there are these 14 different systems that you have to go out and explore that you know the dots are in circles around these different systems when you land on a planet in that system then you get to make first contact uh, with that species and that is good but nobody knows where any of these species are at the beginning of the game because you have these 14 first contact cards that represent the 14 different kinds of aliens you shuffle them face down and you put those on the different spots on the map that's right, you don't know where any of the 14 species are. And interestingly enough, you are one of those species. You think you would know where your own planet is. What do you think the explanation for that is? Let's go with amnesia. All of your pilots, all the players have amnesia. Now, you are allowed to, once you get into a system or the circle around this species planet, once you get into that circle, you may then peek at what card is there, and that might help you decide whether or not you want to land there and make contact with those aliens. So let's talk about how to make and why you want to make first contact. So as I said, there's these 14 systems around the galaxy and each of them has a face down first contact card and you want to go make first contact with uh, these systems before the other players do number one reason is because you get that first contact card so let's talk about what happens when you land on that planet when you land on a new planet that no one has gotten to before you flip it over and you see what you've discovered and it will have a species name and a number and a cute little picture and you'll say i have discovered the graw people huzzah and the graws are these little like turtle sluggy type people but the important thing is to look at the numbers so the graw people are culture number three and you look over to the left side of the board and you have to take all the stuff for the culture number three and you have to go ahead and put it in that system you're gonna put the token that marks that that's where people number three live you're gonna put the goods that people number three make which is glorious junk the Graw people make glorious junk so you're gonna put that right in there there's um there's little outlines of where to put all those things inside that circle on the board you're gonna place the token to show that it's the people number three you're gonna put the goods there there's a factory deed that you're gonna put in there as well and those green dots around that system those are available spaceports to be purchased so you're gonna put little green tokens called spaceport deeds on those green spots and now the Graw people are very happy that you discovered them. Woohoo! And because of that, you're going to get uh, an IOU uh, for free stuff to buy in their system. On that first contact card, you'll see a, a number with a C next to it. It says C90, or you know, it might be C100 or C80. That's how much your IOU is worth. You get 90 credits worth of free stuff to buy at their planet, which is great. You can use it right now, or you can save it and hold on to it and use it later. So good, everything's happy. You moved, you landed on a planet, you're ready to go. Now, can you buy and sell stuff? If you moved on a turn, you always move first if you want to, and then you can sell items and buy items. 
Now, the trick is, if you moved somewhere and you landed somewhere that turn, then at the end of that turn, you can buy one thing and or you can sell one thing. But the sad part is, usually when you land on a place, you usually want to stock up and buy two things and maybe sell two things. And so usually how it works is usually you'll have to land on a planet and then you might buy one thing or maybe you'll just wait. Because if you don't move, then you can do unlimited selling and buying. So you'll probably fly to a planet, stop there, wait a turn, next turn, just sell and buy things. And then because selling and buying happens at the end of your turn, you'll have to wait till your next turn to take off and fly to your next planet. One nice thing about these IOUs is when you spend them, it doesn't count as a buy. It's like a, a free buy. So you could use that to buy something if you used only that IOU money. You could buy more than just one thing. When you use these IOU cards, you have to use them in their entirety, and you don't get any change back if you don't use them all. But again, you can hold on to them and keep them if you want. But that's a good start on how exploring works. So you simply declare where you're going, roll the dice, Hopefully you land somewhere. If you land somewhere that's not been discovered, you can get an IOU card and then you can buy one thing maybe and then wait to your next turn to do some more buying or to take off and fly somewhere else. But now let's move on to the next step. Exploiting discovered trade routes. So the big question is, how do you actually make money in this game? Well, fundamentally, this is a pick-up-and-deliver game with a twist. Because normally in a pick-up-deliver game, I know if I you know, pick up some coal here, they want it over here and they'll buy it for this much. In the game Merchant of Venus, it kind of works the same way. The planets sell things and they want to buy them at other places. But at the beginning of the game, you don't know where anything is. And you have to explore each of those systems. As you explore the systems, then the paths start to become clear. The way the pick up and deliver works is very clever and it makes me very happy. Remember how I said those cultures have a number. The Graw people. The Graw people make glorious junk at culture number three. So you buy some glorious junk at, at culture number three for 30 credits, and you sell it for 80 credits. But you have to go to someone who wants it to who will pay that price. And the seller is always the next four numbers, sometimes five, but usually just the next four numbers. So if you buy something at culture number three, they want to buy it at cultures four, five, six, or seven. So at the beginning of the game, you don't know where it's going to go. Later in the game, you might know, and so it'll be a good decision of whether I'm going to buy that and, and bring it over here or not. At the beginning of the game, it's sort of a risk. Do I want to put that money into it and hope that I find one of those systems or, or fly around until I find it? So just another example, uh, the finest dust is what they produce at culture number five. So I would buy that at culture number five. It's a cost of 10 credits, and the next four cultures want to buy it. So culture six, seven, eight, and nine. So I hope to be able to fly to, say, culture eight and sell to them. And I flip it to the back side of the token, and it has the sell price. There's three sell prices listed there, a green, a white, and a red. Only use the center white 
value. The green and red values are for the standard version, the other version of the game. So Finest Dust, I buy it for 10, I travel where I need to go, and I can sell it for 50. So that's how you start making money in this game. And as the board starts to develop, you hope to be able to create sort of a trade circle where you're getting in between, say, four different systems and you can start hopping from one to the other. For example, you could go to Culture 1, buy their things, go to Culture 4 and sell their goods, buy some new goods and go to Culture number 8, sell those goods and buy some new goods and go to Culture 12 and then go back to 1 and then 4 and then 8 and then 12. And if all goes well, you can just keep flying in that circle. But usually, something will disrupt that plan. So the first part of the game, you're just figuring out where these different cultures are. And then the second part of the game, you're using your money to start to travel from planet to planet so you can sell these goods to start making more money. So let's talk about the buying and the selling. As I said earlier, buying and selling happens at the end of your turn. So remember, you can't buy and sell and then take off. Buying and selling is the last thing you do on your turn. Don't forget to use that IOU if you've got one. You don't have to. It doesn't count as a buy action. If you landed there that turn, you get one buy and or one sell for that turn. If you chose not to move, then you can buy and sell as much as you want. One other wrinkle is that your ship can only carry so many goods. When you're buying goods at a system, a good takes up a cargo hold, a full cargo hold, and your starting ship only has two cargo holds. Of course, you may be limited by the amount of money that you have as well. So ideally, what's going to happen is you're going to shoot off to your first system, you'll get an IOU, and maybe you'll buy a good there, and then you'll shoot off and you'll find another system, and you'll be able to sell that good at a profit. Now, when you sell a good, you trigger the bonus cup. The bonus cup is my favorite part of this game. What happens is you get a cup. They did not include one in the game, so you'll have to supply your own cup. I hope that you have one. And at the beginning of the game, in the cup is going to go a couple of different kinds of chits. There are passenger chits, and there are these demand chits. And the other thing that's going to go in there is as you sell goods, they will disappear into this cup. And that's the only way more goods come back out. Once you discover a planet, that species will show up with, say, three or four goods. But once all those goods go away, you have to wait for them to come back out of the cup. So they come out of the cup triggered by each sale. So if you sell one good, you take that one good, you put it in the cup, you mix it around, and you pull a, a new chit out. And it's going to be one of three things. It's either going to be a good, a passenger, or a demand. If it's a good, you just put it back in the system where that good is made, and now there's another good there available for purchase. If it's a passenger, a passenger is like a special kind of good. And listed on the passenger, it says where the passenger starts and where it wants to go. You may not have discovered the system where that passenger is. If you have not, you're just going to put him over to the stack on the side of the board where he'll come out when he's discovered where he is. But if you know where he is, you put him right there on that planet, and it's going to say where he wants to go. And when any player then visits that planet, they can pick him up, sort of like a, a piece of cargo, and bring him where he wants to go. And there's a listed value of what he pays for making that trip. But the other thing that's really exciting is these demands come out. For example, you might get a, a demand chit. The demand chits are red. And it says, finest dust 
at six plus 50 credits. And what that means, you pull that out, you put it on the system that culture six is at, and again, if you haven't discovered them, it's gonna go off to the side with all the things for culture six until it's discovered. But if you've discovered them, you're gonna put that in system six, and that'll tell everybody that whoever the first person is to deliver that finest dust is going to get 50 bonus credits. And so these demands sometimes can steer and change your plans if a couple of these pop up. Because if I take that finest dust, and I deliver it, then I get 50 extra dollars. Not only that, this demand chit is also going to go back into the cup, and when I resolve it, I'm gonna resolve one of them first, maybe the finest dust good first, pull out a, a chit, and then I put the demand chit in, and I pull out another one. So when you sell one with a demand, you're actually gonna pull two chits out of the cup. Now the fun thing is, these demands can start to stack. You could get a second finest dust demand at uh, system number six, and that means the first person to deliver the dust will get plus a hundred. And the good news about that is they don't both go away. Only one of those demand chits go away. So if there were two chits there, and I brought two finest dust, I would sell the first one, and I would get plus a hundred, and I would take the dust and the demand chit away. And then I would sell the second one at plus a 50 and I would uh, take that dust and that demand chit and so all those would go back into that bonus cup and four more chits would come back out. So you can see when those start to stack it's a pretty powerful suggestion to deliver goods there. So those demands are in there as I said those passengers are in there. A couple things about the passengers getting the passengers and dropping off passengers does not count as a buy or a sell action. I guess they just sort of walk off on their own. The other nice thing about passengers is they only take half a cargo hold. So if you manage to get two or there's a few other things you can get that will fill half a cargo hold, they aren't as bulky as the standard goods. The last thing about buying and selling is you can offload things. If you get to a place and you decide, you know what, I don't want this finest dust, I'm never going to sell it, you can just sort Sort of get rid of it when you are landed somewhere. You can also do that with passengers. Now you have to you have to be landed somewhere. You can't just jettison the passengers out the airlock at will. And when you do offload goods or passengers, it will also trigger the bonus cup. Those goods will go back in the cup and you will take more chits out. But that's how you exploit the galaxy. You you find these trade routes. You're going to buy them at a certain location. You're going to look for a location of the next four highest numbers. You're going to go there. You're going to sell your goods. You're going to buy some more stuff. And you're going to do it all over and over and over again. And you're going to watch those things that pop out of the bonus cup to see if there's some more demands or passengers that might change your plans. And hopefully you will soon enter the middle class of the galactic economic strata, in which case you are now ready to invest your fortune. All right, so at the beginning of the game, you're going to be pretty cash-strapped. You don't get a lot of money to start. Just 60 or 80 credits, and you got to turn into 2,000 somehow. But once you start turning over those goods over and over again, hopefully you'll get somewhere and start to have a little bit of extra cash on hand. Maybe, you know, you start to have 300, 400, 500 credits in your pocket. Now's the time to start to invest some of that extra money into buying spaceports and factories. Let's talk about what spaceports and factories are and why you want to buy them. So first of all, spaceports. Spaceports allow you to make money quicker. They cost 200 credits, but 
cost is not really the correct word because when you buy a spaceport, you get in return uh, what's called a spaceport deed, and that sits right there in front of you. And that deed has a value of 200 credits. So you're really not losing any money. What you're losing is the available capital to buy more goods. So once you have enough money to buy that spaceport for 200 and still have enough money to buy some goods to keep making money, now you're, you're ready to enter the spaceport business. So other than them not costing you anything, what's the benefit? Well, the benefit is this. Whenever you buy things or sell anything at one of your spaceports, you get 10% commission on that. So if you buy something or, or sell something, you make that sale and then you get an extra 10%. Or if you buy something, you buy whatever the price is and then you get sort of a 10% rebate. Not only that, but if one of your opponents decides to use your spaceport either to buy or sell for each transaction that they do, you're going to also get to collect 10% of whatever that transaction was, whether it was a buy or a sale, and collect that amount from the bank. You don't get it from the player, but they're still helping you by getting you a little extra money by using your spaceport. Now, why would they do that? Why would they use my spaceport? Well, the spaceports, usually there's two or three in orbit of a system. And when you buy one, they cost 200. You're going to replace the deed that's on the board with one of your tokens to show that you own that spaceport there and it's in business ready to use. So the nice thing about spaceports is remember how when you have to land on a planet, you can only do one sell and one buy. And that's really a drag because it takes you an extra turn. You have to land there and you can maybe sell one thing and buy one thing, but you really want to sell all your stuff and buy all your stuff. Well, that's what you can do at spaceports. You fly to the space where the spaceport is, and you can do as much selling and buying as you want. So not only is it good for you, it's advantageous for your opponents as they don't want to land either. And more than likely, they're going to be willing to give you that 10% so that they can save a turn. And usually how the spaceport works is, you know, you get one buy when you land on a planet. So once you have enough cash, what you really want to do is then land on the surface city, buy a spaceport at the end of the turn. Then on the next turn, you fly to that spaceport and you do all your buying and selling and then you get that 10% extra and you are happy. And then when any of, any of your friends come around, they'll probably stop there too and give you a little extra cash. Hooray! The next option is a factory. You want to buy factories because they help you make money quicker, but in a different way. They have a cost of 100 or 200 depending on the system. The factory deed is sitting there right in the system. But again, it doesn't cost you money really because that money counts towards your total score. Now, buying a factory, what does it let you do? It allows you to purchase a premium good worth more money. So instead of buying the regular finest dust, you can buy the factory finest dust, which gives you a much better profit margin. But wait, that's not all. When you buy this premium good, whoever owns the factory, hopefully it's you, gets a 50% commission. So you buy it for full price and then you get a 50% rebate and then you go and you sell it somewhere else and you get even more of a profit margin. So it's a good way to start earning money faster rather than just buying the regular goods. 
Now, keep in mind that all the factory lets you do is lets you buy that premium good, which gives you a higher profit margin. So if you don't have enough money to buy both the factory and the factory good, then buying a factory usually really isn't that great. This is for people who have enough money to buy a factory and the factory goods, and now they're earning even extra money. So now what you really want to do, and you got a lot of money, is go to a planet, buy the spaceport, go to your spaceport, buy the factory, buy the factory good, and maybe another regular good, and now you're rolling in it. Because not only did you get that factory good for half off, but you also got a 10% commission on it. So you basically only paid 40% of the price. Hooray! I know, I know. Some of you are thinking, I got to figure out 10% and 50%. Welcome to 1988, a time when people weren't afraid of math. Yes, you really have to figure out what 10% and 50% is. Speaking of fun with percents, if you discover your home planet, for example, if you are playing the humans, each person is going to play one of four of the different cultures that appears in the game. If I'm playing the humans and I discover the human system, you get a 20% discount on your own spaceports and factories in that system. Not on any of the goods, just on the property there. And actually, that's listed right there on your player card, which will help you out. But that's how you invest to make more money. And you really want to do this or you're going to miss an opportunity to make money faster. When you have extra money, you need to put that money to use by buying spaceports and or factories. Now, you know the steps for winning the game, but there are some things that will still stand in your way. Now you need to learn of the dangers of the galaxy. All right, so you'll notice several interesting spots there on the board. Let's talk about what is on the board. There are little starry shaped spots with numbers in them. These are hazard spaces. These represent bad things like hurtling asteroids or pirates or something terrible. When you move into these spots, you have a couple of choices. You may either pay the listed cost, which is usually 10, 20, or 30. I can pay that many credits and keep moving, or I can just stop my turn there. And sometimes I'll be forced to do that if I don't have any money. And the next turn, I can continue from there. There are some dangerous paths on the board with like three hazards in the row, and you don't want to go through those without any money, because then you'll spend three turns going through there, and that would be bad. Next, there are these navigation circles. Now, you can't always traverse about in space wherever you want to unless you're an especially good pilot, and that's what these navigation circles represent. When you get to these circles with triangles on them, these are navigation spaces. When you get to one of these intersections, they usually point three or four different ways. In order to go different directions, you have to have a certain number on a die. For example, it might be one, two, three, one direction, four, five, another direction, six, another direction. When you get to one of these circles, you need to pick one of the numbers that you rolled as your navigation die. So say I rolled three, five, six. Maybe I choose that five as my navigation die. There's a spot on your player mat to mark that. So you pick up that die and you put it on the, the correct spot. And then for the rest of my turn, when I travel, I have to follow wherever the five points. I can't change in the midstream. And so that's where this declaring your movement at the beginning matters. Because I could say, all right, I'm going to go this way. And there could be navigation circles that way. And if I do not roll the number I'm hoping to roll, say I really needed a four and I didn't get a four, well, since I already committed to that direction, I'm going to be in big trouble. And it's going to head me maybe the direction that I did not want to go. 
go. One thing about those navigation circles is if the arrow points you back in the direction that you were going, if it would point you directly back, it will just stop you at that point. And sometimes that may be a way to uh, stop yourself from going the wrong direction. Pick the one that's going to go the opposite direction, and then that will stop you. And then the next turn you can roll and hope to get that number that's going to get you to go the correct direction. So that's the dangers of those navigation circles. The next thing you can run into on the board are these encounter chits. At the beginning of the game, there's all these circular chits with uh, squares with little star, white stars in them. And you flip them all face down and you, you shuffle them around. And you put all these on the board face down into the designated locations. And you're going to get to these on the board. And sometimes you can avoid them and sometimes you can't. And when you get to these encounters, chits, you simply go to them and you flip them over. About half of them are good and about half of them are bad. A lot of them are just the hazards that I mentioned earlier. They're going to have those uh, those numbers on them, 10, 20, or 30, that you're going to have to pay or stop. But what you really hope to get, there are a few of these called relics. And relics are, I don't know, special alien technology, and they give you a special ability. You get to take them. They don't uh, take a cargo hold. Actually, you have to decide if you want to take them, because choosing to take them is going to end your turn. If you don't want to pick them up, then you can just keep going. But most of the time, you're going to want to pick them up, because they're going to give you a nifty special ability. And if nothing else, you can trade them in to buy other stuff. So usually you get a relic, uh, you'll stop, you'll pick up the rule book and read and see what your super special ability is, and then you'll trade that in uh, for, an, it will now become an asteroid spot, and you'll put a little asteroid where that relic was. The other thing you might get is you might get a spaceport for the system. We talked about how spaceports of opponents work. They're nice because they're uh, good quick places to buy and sell for that system. And the open spaceport is even kind of better because you don't have to pay the commission to anyone. It just allows you to buy and sell for that system. You don't have to land on that planet and it saves you some time. So it's kind of nice when those pop up. The last thing that you might encounter in these encounters, I guess, are telegates. There are six of these chits, and they have a, a one, two, three, four, five, six on them, and a blue circle. These also use that navigation die. When you get to this telegate, if you've already picked a navigation die to go through a navigation circle, well, then uh, you might find yourself somewhere you don't want to be. Because what happens is whatever your navigation die is, you're going to pop over to the other telegate uh, that has that number. Now, when you flip up the first one of these, there are no other telegates on the board, so it won't be a big deal. When you flip over the second one, now you've opened up sort of a wormhole between two different locations on the board. And there might be a three and a five. So if I uh, flip over a telegate and my navigation die happened to be a five, well, I'm going to pop over to the other side of the board, which might make me unhappy. Or it might be a good thing because I may not have used my navigation die yet and I'll flip over that telegate and then I can say I'm going to assign my navigation die. I'm going to make it a five because I want to pop all the way over here. And that doesn't take any movement. You just pop over to the other side of the board and now you're good to go. And that sort of makes it interesting. As some of these pop up, it allows players to sort of launch themselves over to different uh, parts of the board, and it really opens up some different trade routes that may not have been there without them. So the Telegates are a really interesting part of the board there. Well, what else is on the board? There's also asteroids. They're just uh, little 
free, safe places to land. And sometimes it's a good idea just to land on those if you find that if you continue, you're going to end up in a spot you don't want to be. Sometimes it's good to just stop on an asteroid and change directions or, or give uh, the dice another roll next time. The other thing that uh, is important to mention, I suppose, is that most of the systems, most of the people have uh, planets that you need to land on using those little green lines and go down on them and land there. There's a couple special systems that aren't planets. Uh, they actually live on spaceports. So these are called neutral spaceports. And so the nice thing about these, you don't have to spend the two points to go down and, and come back up on them. But the bad news is, unlike the spaceports that people buy, you can't do the unlimited buy cells on these uh, special neutral spaceports. And you can tell the neutral spaceports because they're not on a chit, they're printed on the board, and they're a little bit larger than the regular spaceports. So there's just a, a couple of those. Just be aware that those are like the planets, except you don't have to land down on the planets. In fact, there's one interesting system where there is a, a culture that has two different spaceports, one on either side of the system, and you can land on either one of those to contact uh, that, that particular culture in that system. But that's what to look out for when you go gallivanting around space. Now, you might say, I need myself a fancier spaceship. How can I go about that? Well, it's your lucky day because we're going to talk about how to upgrade your ship. All right, so you can upgrade your ship. You can even buy a new ship. In order to do that, you need to be with the right culture. Different cultures of these 14 different species are at different levels and have different science at these different planets. And this is represented by an icon on that culture's token. You'll see the little icon there. And on your player mat, there's a, a matching thing that shows you that if this guy has the DNA symbol, it shows you what you can buy there. There are five different types of planets. One of them lets you buy shields. Two of them that let you buy drives and ships. There's one of them that lets you just buy a, a special drive. And then there's these primitive cultures. They have a, a stone axe as their symbol. And you can't buy any special equipment or ships there at those cultures. So let's talk about what these things do. You can buy a shield. The shields are very handy because we talked about all those hazard symbols that are on the board, and there are a lot of them. What the shield does is it uh, subtracts 20 every time you run into those, those hazards. So you are immune to 10s and 20s. You can blow right by them. And for the 30s, you're only going to have to pay $10, which is really nice. You can buy more than one if you want to. If you buy more than one, then that requires half of a cargo space. Three different types of uh, science cultures allow you to buy drives. One lets you buy a red drive, one lets you buy the yellow drive, the other one lets you buy the combo drive. The drives allow you to move faster. The board is made up of each time you move, you're either going to go on a red, a yellow, or a blue dot, or some of them aren't dots, they're the asteroids or special symbols, but there's mainly made up of red and yellow dots as you're counting your ship around the board. Now what the yellow drive allows you to do is when you're moving, you can skip all the yellow dots on the board and some of the hazards. The hazards are yellow, red, and blue. So you can skip even the yellow hazards. So the drives let you move a little bit faster. There's the least number of yellow dots. There's a few more red dots. So the red drives are a little bit faster 
and they're a little bit more expensive. Now the combo drives are really expensive, but guess what? They allow you to skip the red and the yellow dots. So now you're only moving on the blue dots and all of the special little spots like the asteroids and the navigation circles and those sorts of things. These drives though do take half of your cargo hold, which can be a real detriment, but keep that in mind. Uh, the other thing you can do with this equipment is you can barter it for half price, meaning you can get rid of it and then trade it in uh, for something else. You can't get it for cash, but you can trade it in for other items. It costs you a sell action. Any of those shields or drives, you can, you can turn them in for half of their value. And those relics, remember those relics that you can discover? You can trade those in for the full value that's listed on them towards uh, purchasing anything that those uh, people have to offer. So that's a, a nice option available to you. There's also a trading rule, which I've never actually seen done, but it is there. If you and a, an opponent are on the same city or spaceport or asteroid or something, you can say, hey, I'll trade you your finest dust for your megalith paperweight or I'll trade you your red drive for for 65 bucks or whatever whatever they want to do you can't trade ships or deeds uh, but anything else you can trade next thing is you can trade in your scout ship you start with a scout class ship and there's two different cultures uh, that each each of the cultures sells two different kinds of ships of course one of them is the one you started the game with so there's really three different ships that you can upgrade to uh, the different ships are going to change two values they're going to change your speed by how many dice you can roll and they're also going to change your cargo so there's uh, one clipper ship that lets you roll four dice and then the other two ships are heavier ships one of them moves the same speed, three dice, but it has three cargo holds. And then the big one, uh, you only throw two dice, but you have five cargo holds. So you can move around a little slower, but it, once you make those deliveries, you're going to cash in a lot of money. How you buy those ships is, of course, you have to be at the culture that has that particular ship available. Also, the galactic base, that place that you start, they buy and the, they sell all ships. So if you want a ship, that's a good place to go. When you do that, you uh, trade in your old ship at its trade-in value, which is half of that value, and then you pay the purchase price of your new ship. And there you go. You have a shiny new ship. But that's about all you need to know. You know the three steps of what you need to do. You need to explore the universe, exploit those great trade routes, invest your fortune to become the richest merchant of the galaxy, shown by being the first player to a target number of credits. Usually uh, we, we play to 2,000 credits, but you can play to 1,000, 3,000, 4,000. Heck, 6,452 credits, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Whoever reaches that target number on their turn, at the end of their turn, may declare themselves victorious. Part 3, The Hamster. How to win the game. Okay, so it's time to get into some basic strategy for this game. And, you know, my friend Eric is starting to mess around with, with the games in my game closet. He's getting bored and, and starting to do strange things here in my Can basement. Can I open up so just to... copy of Brass? Is that okay? Stop it. Stop. Come on over here. Come, Eric. What? Yeah? What? Right. what? So, hello, Eric. Once again, hey. how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Did you do any silly voices? Uh, I'm not sure if I did or did not yet. Uh, 
It's a mystery that remains to be seen. But for now, our business we need to get into is how to win this game. So oh. I'm sure you've, you've taught this game to probably hundreds of people, and you give them some basic advice on, on how to do well in this game. So what advice would you give people for their first game of classic Merchant of Venus? Well, uh, right off the bat, we talked about this three-act structure. So at the beginning, exploration is the key. And there are two things, really, to think about in exploration at the beginning of the game. First, you're looking at the different planets. You don't know where anything is at the beginning. So getting those IOUs for being the first player to hit various planets is an important influx of cash and a great way to sort of separate yourself from the other players. So at the beginning of the game, do your standard rule, Ryan. Go where people aren't going and uh, try and get to as many planets as you can quickly. Earn some of those IOUs and start that engine going. The other thing that you may want to go for, and this can be a little more risky... Uh, is looking at those question mark tiles, the asteroids, the the taters, as some people refer to them uh, from the original edition. And those can contain anything from amazing relics to open ports to massive penalties that will really mess you up. But if you get lucky in discovering those terrific relics, you will have a significant advantage over the other players throughout the rest of the game. So if you are feeling lucky, I played this game with Mr. Tom Vassell, and it was his first play, he found every relic in the game. Every time he turned over a question mark tile, it was a relic, and he destroyed us. Sounds so, really suspicious, Eric. That Yeah, well, yeah, I, he may have stacked <laughs> the deck. I don't know why I let him set them up. Uh, but it's certainly worth a try if you want to go for that risky strategy to search, go. Well, I call it going relic hunting, and see if maybe you can get some cool stuff. So find things right off the bat. Yeah, I, I think breaking it up in your mind into those three different phases is a good way to do it because it really feels like you move through these different phases. An, an explore phase, um, a uh, exploit phase, I guess, is what you would say. You create your little economic engine, and in the final phase, you're investing. So uh, you mentioned a little bit in that explore phase. You really just want to fan out. You want to go where people are not, and it's uh, do what the other people aren't doing. I mean, between that and the blue diamond, you're you're messing with all of my iconic <laughs> how to play references. I can't believe this. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. You're the one that invited me. <laughs> So you're trying to go out there and explore where people are not, and then you really got to exploit what you know is out there and create that path. And if you can create this circle, bingo, bongo, bango, bingo, bango, bongo, you're going to start earning a lot of money. Yeah, you're looking for maybe four or five planets that you can sort of create a loop from one to the other to the other. That's sometimes easy and sometimes very difficult, depending on how those planets come out. And also, uh, if other players are still exploring, but you spot a really good loop, you can start doing that earlier than the other players and start earning money more quickly. And you may be ahead of the curve as far as actually getting that engine going. But the thing is, don't get trapped into that loop. You might get really excited by that loop and start going around in a circle, but that's where the beauty of the cup comes into play. When oh, something yeah. shows up and it's you know it, it's not in your loop and there's there's two tokens there, it may be time to switch gears. Yeah, or all of a sudden the stock on a particular planet runs out and then you have to find a new a new gravy train to hop onto. 
Right. And I think one of the, the parts of the game that players who are new to the game often miss or forget about is when you buy those spaceports, those can be such a good way to increase your income in the late game. I think they forget that they think they're buying something and they think that money goes away. That money does not go away. You still have <laughs> that $200. Yes. And and more than just an income stream, it's an efficiency stream. I mean, this is sort of heading into the mid-game. You've done the exploration, and you sort of figured out, here's the general loop I want to start working on. And so now you want to make it faster to start moving around the board. And one of the best ways to do that is to start buying ports. I think as soon as you have the extra money... You want to start doing that because the next time you visit that planet, it's going to be easier to buy and sell. You don't need to land on and take off from that planet anymore. Uh, also, other players are just going to start giving you money when they do that same thing. So one of the best moves in the game, if you have the cash, is to land on a planet, buy the port. Then on your next turn, you take off for the port and then buy the factory and the factory good and then whatever else you can buy. You get commission on all that. And you've added to your real estate portfolio, and you are trekking through the game. It's possible, though. One thing I've I've been leery of is to starve yourself of cash. And there's, you know, it is it is really good to get that that spaceport when you can. But if you do that and you can't get a full boat of goods, or or right. getting that turning over that profit is not going to make up enough money for you to make your next stop after that, you could really be doing yourself a disservice. Right. You you do. I I should have been a little more clear when I say you have the money to do it. You still after purchasing that port have enough to make all the purchase you, purchases you need to fill up your ship so that you can then get somewhere and make money. Uh, you don't want to be stuck with little or no cash in this game, especially early on, because if you get stuck in a cluster of hazards, you will be stuck there and will have to be moving one space at a time for a while, and that's just not cool. How much do you like to upgrade your ship, Ryan? Usually once during the game, and I try to do it early enough so that it matters. You know, if, you, if you're turning over your ship twice, you're probably not going to get enough investment out of that. And, and choosing that ship is an important decision in how you're going to play the game going forward. Right. I, I agree. I think the rule of thumb is that you should only be upgrading your ship one time. I think if you are doing it more than once, you are well behind the curve of other players. Some people can win this game without ever upgrading their ship. I have done it a few times with the basic scout. Uh, well, as where other people have been spending money on those ships, I just sort of keep doing my thing and cruise to victory. But once, you could certainly upgrade your ship, uh, and it's often good to do what the other players aren't doing in this case as well. If somebody is going the freighter strategy, the slow but full ship, you might go for the fast clipper and hope to get your total, get, get to that threshold before the freighter player is able to get their engine fully in motion. Uh, if you are in the last, I think you want to be buying your ship at least before the halfway point of this game. Uh, if it's any later than that, you're wasting your money, and, uh, and, and you are not going to make back the amount of money that you spent on that ship before the end of the game. And that's a really good point. How do you know when it's halfway through the game? You really should be paying attention to the amount of money people have, which includes those space stations and factory deeds that they have in front of them. You should t be able to total that up. And if someone's at 1,000, you know, all right, we, we still have a ways to go here. If someone is at 1,600, now is not the time to invest in, in a new ship. 
Yeah, although I, I would say that if you're talking about a 2,000 game, if someone's at 1,000, you are a lot closer to the end than you are to the beginning. Uh, yeah. Because those later deliveries can be pretty substantial as people have upgraded their ship. And you're going to start talking about $300, $400 profits each delivery. And, and so that's a pretty big deal. And you need to be aware of that. So when someone's at 1,000, that's when I start asking every turn or two, all right, what's everybody's total? Uh, what, what are you at? What are you at? What, what do you have in your ship? Okay, so I, I have a sense of what the board looks like and what that pace of the game is going to be. If people are at 1,000, if you have at least one player, maybe two players at 1,000, stop buying those ships. You should be focusing on just what you've got and get where you need to go and be as efficient as you can because that's your only hope of passing the leaders at that point. And so I think the um, the underlying theme here is pay attention to the flow of the game. Beginning, you're exploring. In the middle of the game, you need to really set up a network to make some serious cash. And then when you're able to invest into those, those spaceports and those factory goods, take advantage of that. When you're able to get that ship, do that, but do it before it's too late. And know what stage of the game you're in and do that as, as to the best of your ability. Sounds like a plan. All right, here in the footnotes, I'd like to get into a little bit about what are the differences between the classic version and the standard version. As you just heard, I've decided to do the classic version, and I touched base with Eric Summer about what he thought about that decision. Here's what Eric had to say. Eric Summer, I have made the decision to focus this episode on the classic version of the game, which is available to play out of the box from the new Fantasy Flight version mm -hmm. as sort of a, I guess, as a result of the, the Stronghold Games Fantasy Flight games thing that I don't want to totally go into. Uh, but <laughs> yes. my question to you is, what do you think? Which of these sides are the players going to like more. I'm endorsing that players play the classic version of the game because you know it's been around for a long time. It's a game that, that a lot of us love. Fantasy Flight Games has done some new and interesting things with what they're calling the standard game, but I endorse that players uh, try that classic game. What are your thoughts on the matter? Uh, well, I think it, it's hard since the classic game is my favorite game of all time. It would be very, very difficult for any game to surpass that. Uh, I think ultimately I have to go with the classic game. It's still the game I love, and the new Fantasy Flight Edition is lovely, totally playable if you're a fan of the original. It works very well. Uh, that doesn't mean I dislike the new Fantasy Flight game. The, the new Standard Edition is a little more luck-dependent. There are more dangers out in space. Uh, a lot more things can happen to you as you head from point A to point B. In the original, uh, hazards were just about the only thing you needed to worry about. And if you got a shield or two, maybe, you, you pretty much you didn't fear anything anymore. And you knew, as long as you rolled enough distance, that you were going to get from point A to point B. The new Fantasy Flight Edition, that's not quite so clear. You've got encounter spaces instead of those question mark tiles. You've got different sorts of hazards. So you may be really strong in lasers in the new edition, but you may not be all that strong in shields. You hit a shield hazard and you might have to stop. Or you might run into pirates that will be extremely difficult to defeat. And you, you will have to stop. So that could be a good thing, depending on how you look at it. If the leader is about to make their final delivery and they hit a pirate and can't defeat them, well, all of a sudden you've got another turn to try and catch up. Uh, but you may not like that. I, I, 
the new edition feels like Merchant of Venus, which I think is a great thing and a and a win for Fantasy Flight. They are, however, very different games that will appeal to different gamers. I've spoken to folks who really like the new Fantasy Flight Edition, and I've also spoken to fans of the original game that despise the new Fantasy Flight Edition. And so, ultimately for me, I think the classic is the way to go, but you can't go wrong with either of these uh, as a fun space adventure. Mm-hmm. Both of these yeah, will do that for you. And to, to sort of, I don't know, condense why one person would like one version versus the other. We talked about it's a great combination uh, of an exploration game and an economic game. And whichever of those paths more appeals to you, I think kind of will dictate which of these versions you sort of prefer. If you like the ex- exploration and the adventure and the thematic aspects of the game, well, Fantasy Flight has done a good job bringing some more of, uh, of that out out through different elements that they've added. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you are you more of, of an economic, strategic, serious type gamer and you like those thematic elements, but you're more interested in, in playing the game strategically and developing your economic engine without maybe so many random elements involved in the game, then I think you'll prefer the classic version. Would you agree with that? I, I think that's a pretty... That's a pretty good simplification. Uh, there's a lot more emphasis on the upgrading of your ship and on the the traveling in the new Fantasy Flight Edition, uh, actually flying your ship. And the uh, original has a little... It, it's got that exploration and the flying of your ship, but it's the focus is a lot more on getting that engine going and, and, uh, and making your, your system work. Yeah, I think you have a pretty good uh, explanation right there. All right, now let's get into what's different between this classic version and the original classic version, and then what's different between the new standard version and this classic version that I've just described. Classic game in the rule book, uh, Fantasy Flight's version, they don't have a lot of variations listed. There's like one fast play variant which changes how the, the starting goods are set up. Uh, but I know the the original version had just uh, oodles and oodles of, of variations, including a solo way to play. There was there was lasers and, and these aliens that you could try to shoot down and all sorts of uh, different elements added to the game. You could get different crew for your ship. There was a wormhole to this hidden extra race you could add to the game. I would not be surprised if Fantasy... Actually, let me say, I will be surprised if Fantasy Flight Games doesn't come out with uh, something with some of these add-ons to to add to the... Hopefully, some add-ons to the classic version as well as to the standard version. But it, it's interesting to know they actually did change some of the uh, some some of the elements from truly, I guess, a classic, classic version... One of the things is in the original game, there were still 14 uh, different species, but there were some A and B species, like there was a a 4A and a 4B and a 7A and a 7B, and so it was the next three numbers, and it was like a thematic thing. Uh, The A's and B's were like subcultures of one another, like they were related, and that was kind of interesting, and that's why you have the weird thing where there's there's one of them that can go to uh, five different things instead of four. Not really a big deal, but just sort of interesting. They also, one of the things I do miss uh, about the the classic, classic version is the factory goods all actually had different names. So, you know, all those cute, clever names they all have. There was another set of those. It was a completely different name of the good uh, for simplicity, I guess, and, and just to 
streamline things. They made the factory good the same name as the regular good, just sell at sort of a higher price. But I, I kind of miss those wacky names. But other than that, it is uh, you know it's pretty faithful, straight to the original. You're not you're not missing much of anything. But now. Let's talk about the standard game. What What is different between the standard game and the game that I just described? Well, I'll start with my number one thing that I'm a little sad that they, they did take out, and that is the bonus cup. Uh, the bonus cup is my favorite mechanic in the game. Instead, they've, they've added a different mechanic, which is these flex fluctuating markets. Each system has three tokens. It's either up, regular, or down. And anytime you sell goods, you move one of these market tokens and it changes the price. You're either going to get more than you'd usually get, less than you'd usually get, or the, the standard amount that you would usually get. And that's how the production works also. When you get to that regular one, you produce an extra good. And that's how those, those goods cycle through. The space exploration has changed. They added uh, a laser and shields resource. And when you move to these different spots, instead of having those encounter chits and, and just flipping one up and have something happen, instead of having just to pay money when you land on those spots, you have to make sort of these ship checks. You check you know, your amount of lasers and you roll a die and you see if you made it or not. And if you made it, you get to keep going. And, and if not, then, then you have to stop or pay one of your lasers or shields. The chits were also replaced with a, a deck of events. There's spots on the board where you have to flip a card from a from an event deck. And one of the things that, that come up are these nasty pirates. And you have to get a, a ship check at a really high level to beat these pirates. This event deck also has some production on it. So that's also how they get more goods into the game. One thing that surprised me was they gave, instead of the, the way the equipment works in the classic game, they gave every single race, there's 14 different special pieces of equipment that you can buy for your ship, which for me just seemed like a little bit too many rules. You know, you would flip over, all right, this is available. What does that do? And every time you sort of had to look it up and check in the book, ah, and they got rid of the relics in favor of having each race have its own um, individual piece of equipment. And they're kind of neat, but um, it adds uh, I think a little bit more complexity it doesn't really add enough to justify that complexity. You know, I thought they would really try to streamline this game and make it less complex, but actually they took some things out and added some things and it's just about the same level of complexity. One of the things they did was they made assigning dice sort of a resource. In the beginning of the game, you can only assign one die. And whenever you bought this extra equipment, it uh, required, if you wanted to use it, you had to assign a die to it. And you only had so many of these um, abilities to assign dice in the game. So that was sort of a, a resource, and you had to make, it, make a choice about whether you, know, you assign your dice to this special ability or this special ability, which was uh, okay, but I don't know. <laughs> It added these mission cards. Everybody starts off with a mission card, and it gives you some system that it wants you to visit and, and meet some sort of a special requirement. And if you do that, you get a reward card, which, which gives you something and is worth points at the end of the game. Ugh, I, I didn't like that element very much at all. There are these fame points and in infamy, and so when you complete missions, then you, you get some of these fame points. So a lot of these changes I didn't really like. I didn't like that they took the cup away. I didn't like the, the sort of ship checks. Um, all of the different equipment I thought was adding unnecessary complexity. But one of the changes they, they did make that I, I did like was they replaced upgrading your ships with upgrading 
your pilots and that works pretty well when you upgrade your pilots you get better at some of these ship checks you're able to assign more dice and use some of those extra special abilities and I thought that element was was pretty nice I, I liked how that worked I also like that they simplified the spaceports and you just get 10 extra bucks instead of 10%. Um, but they, they took away the factory, which, uh, you know, it, I guess I didn't miss it too much. They did include a, a solo version, way to play the game with different challenges for you to meet. And that's that's sort of interesting, though I don't have any experience using that. It, it is nice that they did provide that option. The other thing I thought was was a curious decision was keeping uh, the navigation circles, which I thought was one of the, the odder, clunkier mechanics in the original game, uh, but they decided to, to keep it, as I think it's it's almost is sort of a necessary element to uh, add some unpredictability to not letting you have complete control of wh where you go on the board. I wish maybe they could have come up with a different way to do that, however. Overall, I think it's it's a fun variant on the system. I did enjoy uh, this this different version of playing the game, the, the event deck. You know, it is exciting. You you flip that up and you, you see what happens. You know, playing with those different resources. Although those all those different uh, components that you can add to the ship, although they each have their own separate rules, it does add some character, allows some different things for you to play with throughout the game. So as a variation to the original uh, Merchant of Venus, it's nice. I like it. It's fun. But if I can only play one, it's not even close. And I think that's partly due to my game preferences, I guess, of a, a, little, le a little less uncertainty in the game and, and a little bit more focus on that, that economic uh, building up than of the, the adventure aspects of the game. I prefer the classic game. But I'll leave it to you to make up your own mind. That will do it for this episode on Richard Hamblin's Merchant of Venus. Uh, overall, let me just say I'm so glad that this game is out for more people to enjoy, as it really is a great experience. I know Eric touched on this, what, what a unique, fun game experience it is, and I'm just so glad it's out there. So many more people to give a try to. I hope you'll give it a try, and, and I hope you'll find it as much fun as Eric and I do. But I think it's about time for me to sign off. Not only for this episode, but for this year. Thank you to all the listeners for supporting the last six months here at How to Play. I hope you all had a great holidays and, and wish you the very best at the start of this new year. So, for the last time in 2012, I guess I'll say thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. That wraps up this episode of How to Play, but be sure to visit us on our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com, for all the How to Play resources, to discuss the show, to contact me, or to show your appreciation for the show with a PayPal donation. I count on your support to help keep How to Play growing. If you use and love the How to Play podcast, I need your help. Show your appreciation by making a donation, spread the word about the show, and just let me know what you think about the show there at the Guild. Thanks again to you, the How to Play listeners around the world. And until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the premier board gaming media network, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. All right. Well, thanks again so much, Eric. Hey, you bet. All right. Uh, you need to get on your bike and go home. The, you're not, you, you sent a car for me to get here.
<laughs> it's only one way. The oh. the budget is only so high for these episodes. All right. Well, thanks. See you later. It's got one of those things on the wheels. One of those things on the wheels? <laughs> you know, with jack of spades. Oh, so it sounds like a motorcycle? <laughs> Ooh.